Sisters, and let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. First, our Old Testament text, Exodus 33, starting in verse 17 and reading through 34, verse 9. Exodus 33, 17 through 34, verse 9. This is God's unfailing Word. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So it shall shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you. And let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone, like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness, and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, Let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. In our New Testament text, John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, especially verse 14. That'll be where the sermon camps out, but um, the whole section here for context is very helpful. So John, chapter 1. Verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, 
that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Thanks be to God for His Word. Uh, let's also read now the um, shorter catechism questions we're considering tonight. Uh, they're in the back of the hymnal. If you'd like to turn there, it's question 21 uh, and 22. Page 870, the back of the hymnal. Um, we won't be working through it as closely as we have with some of the others, uh, but this is kind of the thematic point. John 1.14 is one of the key proof texts uh, that the divines cite for question 21 in particular, and so we'll be considering that text in detail. So let's read question 21 and then 22. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And then 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. All right, let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, we pray that what we do not know, you would teach us. Keep us humble disciples in the school of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us never lose sight of our need for our Savior. Let us never forget that apart from our Savior, we are nothing. We can do nothing. Open our understanding to know your holy word. Lead us into all truth, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. What kind of a Savior do you need? Ever think about that question? Um, we hear that Jesus is the Savior, but, but what kind of Savior do you need? Well, in, in different circumstances, in different situations, you need a different kind of Savior. If you're in a burning house, 
you need a firefighter. If you are caught in a storm in a boat off the coast, you don't need a firefighter, you need a coast guard. You need a, you need a savior who's fit and equipped to meet the particular need that you're in, the circumstances that you're in. If, you, if, you're, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you need a doctor, right? It, it, whatever our need is, the problem that we find ourselves in, we need a savior fitted to that. What's our situation? situation is that we've broken covenant with God, rebelled against him, broken his law. Uh, we, we, we've, we've gone our own way. We've made ourselves our own gods. So we're under his wrath. We're under his curse. And that is the fundamental problem. We've been exploring this for a little while now, looking through the shorter catechism at man's estate of sin and misery. In Adam, we all sinned. We've been imputed with his sin and we've been infected by his sin. And that colors everything about us. Because of it, we're under God's wrath, facing his curse, facing death, facing hell itself. That's our situation. What kind of Savior? What kind of Savior do we need? What we need is a mediator. We need a go-between. Between God and ourselves. We need someone who has the qualifications to, to be the mediator between God and man. Who has those qualifications? What, what would those qualifications be? Well, you'd have to have the very best, right? The, the, the cream of the crop of all humanity. Someone who's righteous and holy, who could, who could represent us before God, stand before God. We really need someone who's sinless for that. That limits the field, doesn't it? If we're looking for a savior, looking for a mediator between us and God, we need someone who's sinless. We can scour history, scour the pages of Scripture. Who do we see? Is there anyone, any man good enough? We need someone who can bear the wrath of God at the same time. We've sinned and offended uh, against an infinite God, and so the punishment for sin against an infinite God is an infinite punishment, an ongoing, eternal punishment. We need someone who can bear an eternal punishment. Any man who can do that? But it needs to be a man to bear the wrath of God in our place. But what man can bear the eternal wrath of God for the sin that we've committed? We need someone to stand between God and ourselves, bear his wrath, be our representative, someone who can hold together in one person all of this. And so I think what we see as we consider these things is that we need a mediator who is man and yet more than man, who is man and God, God and man together in one person. That's the kind of Savior that we need. Now, if we didn't know Jesus Christ... This would seem like bad news because this sounds like an impossibility. Who can be both God and man together in the same person at the same time? That's beyond anything we could imagine. It would sound like the Savior we need just doesn't exist. And yet in the pages of Scripture, the glorious news is that that mediator does exist. That God has sent him for us. This perfect mediator, God and man, together. And that's what John chapter 1, verse 14 is telling us. That there is a Redeemer. There is a Savior perfectly fitted to our, to our need. And it's the God-man, 
who's come to reconcile us to God himself. So let's dive in. Consider our Savior here. Especially in verse 14, we'll also look a little bit at the verses around uh, verse 14, but, but mainly verse 14. We start verse 14 uh, with our first heading, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Those are just astounding words, aren't they? They're, they're very simple, but they communicate to us this immense mystery. If we remember verse 1 here of John chapter 1, it tells us who this Word is. It became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this is none other than God himself that John 1.14 is talking about. He was there before creation. He He was there himself bringing about creation. This isn't a creature. This isn't a sub-creation. This isn't a middle ground between creature and creator. This is none other than God himself. John says here, the Word was with God and the Word is God. He's pulling back the veil for us in the mystery of the Trinity. This is the Word that John is referring to verse 14. This eternal God became flesh. Charles Spurgeon tries to capture something of the wonder of this with his word, with, 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 with human language. He says, And now wonder, ye angels. The infinite has become an infant. He upon whose shoulders the universe doth hang, hangs at his mother's breast. He who created all things and bears up the pillars of creation hath now become so weak that he must be carried by a woman. This is, such a, this is such an incredible mystery that the eternal God became man. Took on a human body, but not just a human body, right? He, he takes on a whole human nature. Body, soul, mind, heart, will. He's a whole man. He's true man. Without sin, but everything else that man is, he is. We see this in the Gospels, right? We see that Jesus is born. He's, he's wrapped up in swaddling claws like any other baby. And he grows up. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He weeps. He's nailed to a cross. He's buried in a tomb. Fully man. Yet at the same time, he doesn't give up being God to do it. He remains fully God this whole, this whole time. His divine person, right? The eternal person of the Son doesn't somehow shed his divinity as if he could to take on human nature. He, he adds to himself this human nature. But he doesn't take, you know, as, we, as we try to think, well, how do we understand this? What's going on in the incarnation as the Son, as the Word becomes flesh? We take the, the, the eternal Son takes to himself this human nature, and it's not like they're, they're, they're combined into some kind of hybrid, right, of this, uh, this mix between God and man. They are distinct from each other, the two natures of Christ. But at the same time, they're not separate from each other. Right? Jesus isn't schizophrenic. They're not two halves of a whole. He is fully God and fully man and one person. Calvin puts this with his characteristic clarity. He says, two natures were so united in one person in Christ that one and the same Christ is both true God and true man. So if you're there in Palestine and you see Jesus 
You know, he's walking down the road with his disciples, or he's, he's speaking, he's, he's sitting down to a meal. You're looking at one who is God and man. John writes about this. 1 John 1, verses 1 to 2. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John says, we saw him. We saw the eternal Son of God in the flesh. We touched him. We had supper with him. We walked and talked with him. Not with just the man, but with the whole Christ. And as our catechism reminds us, this isn't a temporary thing. Jesus didn't just, you know, become man for a, for a time being to do the task here of being our mediator. He does this forever. He takes the human nature to himself forever. So he has still a whole human nature, body and soul, as he sits at the right hand of God, his lungs breathing, his heart beating, his brain thinking as the God-man interceding for us on the throne of heaven and glory. How do we understand all this? How do we comprehend what God has done in the Incarnation? Well, we can't comprehend it. We can understand something of it, but we can't comprehend it. We bow and worship. Only the mind of God could conceive such a glorious mystery as this. But loved ones, as much of a mystery as the person of Christ, as God and man, and two distinct natures and one person forever, as much of a mystery as it is, I think it's just as much of a mystery that God has condescended to do this at all. It's not, it's not just that the mystery is, uh, how does that work? But the mystery is, why did God do this? Right? Why would the God, man, God become man for our sakes? Why would He humble Himself, come down from His eternal glory in heaven, and, and come down to become an embryo in Mary's womb? All right, he's, he's there. The eternal Son is there with God the Father and God the Spirit, perfectly satisfied in Himself, in the Trinity. The angels praising Him in the heavens. And He comes down and he, He's born of Mary. He's laid in a manger. He grows up in obscurity. He suffers and dies for the sins of His people. Why would God do this? It's amazing condescension, glorious grace of our, our God here. He does this because He loves us. Desire to save for Himself a people. Because He loved you and wanted to save you from your sins. That's why the eternal Son of God took on flesh. So He might suffer and die for you. One of my favorite words um, is eucatastrophe. It's a word that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien coined, invented. It's eucatastrophe, E-U, and then catastrophe. Um, we know what a catastrophe is, right? It's a sudden tragedy that strikes, something bad that suddenly happens, right? Uh, Tolkien takes this Greek prefix, E-U, which means good, right? We see it in a word like eulogy. And he attaches it to the word catastrophe, to, to describe something that, that happens that's not a sudden tragedy, but a sudden joy. 
something that, that, that breaks in, and, 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 like a sudden joy that strikes. He writes this, Tolkien does, you catastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And then he says, the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. Right? That sudden joyful turn that God has done what we did not think possible, coming down, condescending to be made man and to be our Savior and Redeemer. This is the glorious fact of Jesus' incarnation. And then we see, John goes on, to unpack for us some of the significance of this for us. He tells us that this God-man has come to show us the glory of God and to save us. He's come to reveal God to us and to redeem us. So let's look now at the next part of the verse here. We beheld His glory. That's our second heading. We're still in verse 14. We beheld His glory. So John writes, uh, verse 14, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. The word dwell there is important. It could, it, it could just mean that he lived among us, that he walked with us, talked with us, ate with us. But the root of the Greek word for dwell there, which is skenao, is the root of the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for tabernacle. It's the root of the same word. There's significance there, isn't there, right? God saves the Israelites out of Egypt, brings them out of slavery, brings them into the wilderness, and he has them build a tent, a tabernacle, where he will dwell with them. And the tabernacle is in the middle of the Israelite camp. And it's showing them God himself is with you, in your midst, dwelling with you. The covenant Lord has saved you, and now he's dwelling with you. He's condescended to be with you. The tabernacle communicated that to the Israelites. It revealed God to them. That's where they saw His glory. That's what reminded them that He was their Savior and Redeemer. So as John writes in First John, uh, excuse me, in John 1.14, he's saying, Jesus dwelt, tabernacled with us. That tabernacle in, in the Old Testament is pointing to this, that Jesus is the tabernacle. The true tabernacle, right? He, he's the place where God dwells with man, comes down in the middle of his people. That's what the tabernacle was pointing to all along. Reveal, Jesus reveals the glory of God, and his presence is our salvation. And this comes out even more clearly, right? It's not just that we're, we're, we're making all this, uh, oh, the word dwell has roots in the word tabernacle. Maybe we're reading into this a little bit too much. If we look at the, what John goes on to say, he says, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So he's just mentioned dwelling, tabernacling, and then he mentions Glory. If you know your Old Testament scriptures, right, those two things, the tabernacle and the glory of God, those things go together. What happens in Exodus 40 when the tabernacle is finished? Everything's finally put in place according to God's instructions. What happens? The glory of God fills the tabernacle comes down on it and it's so it's so dazzling and brilliant Moses himself can't go in no one can go in because the glory of God fills the tabernacle that's what the tabernacle is it's the dwelling place of the glory of God 
It's just foreshadowing, though, something so much greater, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. All the glory of God is there in Jesus Christ. Brilliant, bright. The greatness and excellency of God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here in John 1.14. What's the content of that glory, though? Most days you saw Jesus, right? He, he, his face wasn't shining. He wasn't radiating this, this, uh, this visible display of glory as the Old Testament people of God saw. There was no halo around his head. There were times, right? right, On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John see for a moment, right? The veil is pulled back. They see the brilliant glory of God in Jesus, his face shining like the sun. But that's unusual, Where do we see the glory of God? Where do we see the manifestation of the greatness and excellence of God in Jesus Christ? The end of verse 14 tells us, John says, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then what's he say? Full of grace and truth. See, this is the glory of God on display in Jesus Christ. He's full of grace and truth. That's where the unmatched splendor of God's person shows itself, in the grace and truth we see in Jesus Christ. And that's not just New Testament stuff. That's, that's right back there in Exodus, isn't it? We read about this earlier. Right, Exodus 33, 18. Moses says to the Lord, Show me your glory. What's the Lord say? I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God says to Moses, my glory is my goodness and my graciousness. And the next day, God puts Moses in the cleft in the rock. He passes by. He makes his glory pass before him. He proclaims his name to him in Exodus 34, 6. And he says, the Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious. There it is again. Long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God shows Moses his grace and his truth. But he only gives him a glimpse. He shows him his back. But in Jesus, what do we see? We see his face. In Jesus, we see the glory of God's grace and truth revealed so much more than Moses saw. Moses saw something like, you know, when you get up and uh, uh, the sun is not up yet, but but it's making the sky bright. You You can see its influence, its effect, and that's something like what Moses saw, right? He glimpsed the grace and truth, the glory of God, but then Jesus comes and it's like when the sun itself springs into the sky. And it's brilliant and dazzling beyond anything you saw before. It's the same light of God's grace and truth, but now it's just so much more full and intense and glorious. And that is what we see in Jesus. There's a little more to see here in this connection between Exodus and and John's passage here. As we're speaking about the grace and truth of God that's being revealed, if we look at Exodus 33 and 34, it's helpful for us to see the context and remember what's going on as God is revealing his grace and truth and his person to Moses. 
What has Israel just done? They've just committed spiritual adultery, basically on the honeymoon. Right? God made them his people. He's cut the covenant, made the covenant with them. And while he is there with Moses on the mountain, writing out the terms of the covenant for them, even then, they break the covenant. Right? They, they, they uh, commit idolatry. They worship uh, a golden calf and say, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is Yahweh, this bull. And God is angry with them. And Moses intercedes for them, and God is gracious with them. He has compassion on them. He spares sinners. He doesn't give them what they deserve. He gives them instead his kindness, his, his grace to them. They don't deserve his grace, but he gives it to them. And then he gives them his truth, his faithfulness to his covenant promises, not to change, but to be their God forever. He made a promise that he would see them to the promised land, and he's going to keep that promise. He shows them grace and He shows them truth. What do we see in our Lord Jesus Christ? God sends His Son to covenant breakers, idolaters, adulterers, sinners. Jesus comes and finds His people faithless, just like Moses coming down the mountain and finding the people worshiping that golden calf. Jesus comes to His own and His own do not receive Him. But that's why He comes. He comes to show us His grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. And He shows us His truth, His commitment to the covenant promises of God, all the promises that are yes and amen in Him. He comes, He says, I am the truth, faithful to all God's promises, faithful to us. This is what we see in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. This brings us then to our last heading which is a question. Will you receive him? That is the essential question. The Gospels were not written just to satisfy our curiosity about Christ or to give us a little more information about Christ. They're written to make us disciples of Christ, followers, students of Christ. And John tells us his purpose for this Gospel at the end, John twenty thirty one. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the purpose of the end of the book. And right here in John 1, he gives us the same purpose. Verse 11, he tells us, He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. There are many who rejected Christ. They spurned Christ. This isn't the kind of Savior we needed or wanted, at least on our, according to ourselves. But then, verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. John is saying, believe in this Christ. Believe in Him. Receive Him. Not because you can in yourself, but because the grace of God works in your heart to cause, it, cause you to. But receive this Christ. Receive the, the salvation He holds out to you. This is exactly the kind of Savior that you need. The God-man. The Redeemer that we need. Verse 16 reflects further on this. Of His fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. John holds out the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, receive Him. And you receive His fullness. And you receive grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. The grace of God for sinners. 
So loved ones, as we see our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer that we can uh, have, the only one there is, the only mediator between God and man, the perfect Savior for the situation that we're in, won't you come to Him? Even if you have come to Him already, come to Him again and, and lay hold of Him again. And uh, stay your heart on Him. Bow to Him and worship Him as, as, the, uh, uh, as your Redeemer and your Savior. Don't look to any other Savior. He's the only one there is. He holds out to you the glory, the grace, the truth of God. Let's pray together. Thank you, O Lord, for this Redeemer that you have given. Even the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would continue to wean our hearts off the world and win our hearts to Him. May all our confidence and trust be in Him. May we rest on Him alone and receive Him. This we pray that you would do by your Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.